keep working there. Let's pray. God, thank you so, so much for being so incredibly good. God, so many answered prayers, Lord. Sometimes we come in and look at that list, and boy, it's just like we keep adding, and it's one after another, and it seems like everything's upside down. But God, to be able to look through that list tonight and see a miracle after a miracle after a miracle after a miracle after answered prayer all the way up to leukemia vanishing into thin air, God. That's nobody but you. That's nothing but answered prayer. I don't understand why you would even allow us to come into your throne room, God. I just thank you that we can. I thank you that you allow us to come in and come on behalf of others and bring the names that we can pray for the sick, Lord, and, and, and ask for healing, and you hear and answer prayers, God. And Lord, that we can pray for lost souls, Lord, and you continue to reach out and souls are saved, God. Lord, you continue to be patient and kind and loving with us and love us in spite of us. And Father, I pray tonight, would you meet right here as we look here, Lord, in, in the Acts of the Apostles, Lord, this, this precious book that you gave us and as we look at Peter and the things that you did there and the great miracle of how you walked him out of that prison cell, God. As a reminder, you've walked a lot of us in here out of prison cells. They may not have been physical prisons. They may not have been physical chains. They may have been drug addictions, alcoholism. They may have been abuse issues, but you've broken a lot of chains right here in this place, God, and you've walked many of us out of some dark prisons and some dark places, God, and all we want to tell you is thank you. Thank you for being so good, God. We love you. I ask you to take this word tonight and teach us, Father. I pray you'd help us, God, strengthen us to be more like Jesus. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, obviously, we finished up. Peter had been in prison, and we saw Peter chained between two guards. There was 16 guards guarding him that night, and he was put away in prison by Herod, and he was destined to die tomorrow morning. Tomorrow's going to be the day of death, and we look at what the peace of God looks like. You're chained up, hands and feet, chained to guards. You're not getting out. You're in the inner ward and in the innermost prison and the maximum security behind two wards and gates and the gates out front and, and sentenced to die, and he's sitting there so asleep that the angel had to wake him up. That's called the peace of God in the face of a storm. That's called God's peace just falling in. When it doesn't make sense, it doesn't have to. Only God can give that kind of peace. And we saw how the chains fell off, and the angel had to wake him up and told him, get up, boy, hurry up, let's go. And I'm, I'm not sure we talked, but I'm not sure what all the hurry was about. The only thing I can figure, as we talked about last week, is the hurry is that angels always seem very determined to get their job done. They come into the presence of men, they get their job done, and they get gone. They don't belabor, they don't tarry around. So the only thing I can figure was the hurry, because he's clearly not worried about the guards. He can handle anything there. The only thing I can figure is he was just in a hurry to, to fulfill the assignment that God sent him to do. But the chains fall off, and they go out, they walk outside, and when they get out into the street, the angel disappears, and Peter finds himself there alone. The Bible tells us that he went to Mary's house. We know John Mark told us that Mary's house is large. It would accommodate a lot of people, so there's plenty of room for a gathering. We know that Mary's house would have been one of the churches there at that time, one of the places where they gathered. But we left off at verse number 13. Peter has just been set free from prison. He's been delivered from a death sentence. And in verse number 13, there at Mary's house where all the churches gathered and everybody's praying for Peter's release, for Peter to be saved from this death sentence, they're all in there praying. Peter knocks on the door of that house. It says at the door of the gate, a damsel came to hearken named Rhoda. Verse 14, when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness, but ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate. 
They said unto her, Thou art mad. She constantly affirmed that it was even so, and they said, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and we had opened the door and saw him. They were astonished. Thank you, guys. Be seated. We'll pick up some few more verses. Just we'll go as far as we can in, in the study. But remember, it is the Holy Spirit who wrote the Word of God, right? We know that the Word of God was written as holy men was moved. The Holy Spirit moved upon the hearts of men and spake, and, and they penned what the Holy Spirit told them to put. Everything is put together by the Holy Spirit of God himself. That means it is the Holy Spirit... God himself thought it necessary to tell us a part of a story, uh, not just about how the angel got Peter out of a storm, because sometimes we need that kind of strength. Sometimes we need that kind of assurance, that kind of hope, that God can come into our prison in the inner ward in the darkest time of the night and, and wake us up and set us free, because a lot of people are bound by chains these days. Not, not prisons, not physical chains, but people are bound by all the things of the world, finances, marriages, jobs, all the stuff that's going on, people are bound. And sometimes we need to be reminded. So the Holy Spirit took time to tell us that the angel came in and broke off all the chains, opened all the gates, and let him out so that we understand that God can walk into our situation, no matter what we're surrounded by, 16 guards or whatever's there, that God can walk into our situation and deliver us from that. But then the Holy Spirit went on to talk about how the angel got out and disappeared and Peter's alone. But the angel, as, as, as he disappears and Peter goes to Mary's house, the Holy Spirit finds it necessary to tell us about Peter knocking on the door of the house where the church is praying and nobody believed it. The Holy Spirit thought it necessary to include in this verse that that the church was in there praying for Peter's release, the, the, the Holy Spirit is telling us that God answered the prayer, sent Peter to the place where they were praying, and they did not believe it. Now, the Holy Spirit didn't accidentally put that stuff there. I mean, can't you just see the scene? They're sitting there praying. I, I'm imagining if it's that kind of prayer meeting, you're thinking Peter's going to die tomorrow. There's probably some people crying, wouldn't you think? I'm just trying to put myself in that kind of prayer meeting. Man, I'm thinking that's a pretty earnest prayer meeting. There's some that's got their hands up. Oh, God. And they're crying out with all they got. And there's some down weeping all over the floor. There's people crying. And, and Rhoda come running and hollering, Peter's at the door. Peter's at the door. And they're like, hey, girl, have you lost your mind? Will you be quiet? We're trying to pray for Peter to get set free. But you don't understand. Peter's set free. Peter's at the door. Girl, this is a very serious time. We ain't got time for your foolishness. But Peter's at the door, girl, Rhoda, 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 can't you see these people weeping? People are broken hearted. Peter's going to be killed tomorrow morning. Do you not see the urgency of this? We're praying. I'm trying to tell you Peter's at the door. Peter knocks again. How much is that like the church? When we as Christians pray, I wonder how often we pray with that same kind of expectation. I wonder how often we, we pray. See, she's trying to convince him that he's at the door, and they're trying to convince her that it's impossible. He can't be at the door because we're here praying for him to get out of prison. So even though they're praying for it, that their prayer is answered even as they prayed, but when Peter arrived, they refused to believe that it's even possible. If we refuse to believe that it's even possible... Why do we pray? 
we're supposed to be a people of faith. And, and faith believes that God is a God who hears us, that God is a God who hears and, and answers the prayers of those who diligently seek him. Now, here's the sad part of all this for me. I can't point a finger at them because I've done it too many times myself. I've never prayed one prayer in my entire life that I did not know that God could not answer, not one. When she was in the hospital with COVID, there wasn't a doubt in my mind God could heal that. When Regina was over there, there wasn't a doubt in my mind that God could heal cancer. When my mom was at hospice, there wasn't a doubt in my mind that, that God could heal it. But there's a big difference between could and would. I've never prayed a prayer that I did not know that God could answer it, but I prayed a lot of them that I had doubts to whether or not he was going to. And, and so I can't really point fingers at them because they're looking at the impossibility of the situation. Herod's a bad dude, man. He's got the whole army. He's got everything under him. He, he's got soldiers around him. He's in the innermost prison. He ain't getting out. He has no chance of coming out of that place. The church, you don't have the ability to go in against armed guards under the prison. There is no way he's getting out of this. So I, I can see them praying with the fullness of belief that God can deliver him. But I mean, really, there's, there's probably not. Been down this road too many times. I've stood beside these cancer beds too many times. My own families and other families, I've stood here too many times. I've seen that look on their face too many times. I've seen that gray-colored skin too many times. I've seen them laid back and unconscious too many times. I've seen them get here too many times. So I know God can, and I'm praying that he will. But I'm just, I'm, I'm just telling you, I need to be, God has no business calling me to be a preacher because we're supposed to be fullness of faith, but I don't know how anything to tell you but real. I ain't no different than them. If I'd have been down here praying and, and Peter's in the situation he's in and, and she tells me Peter's at the door, I'm, I'm one of them. We can be holier now all we want to. But if you ain't, when you leave here, you go on out there to hospice right now and you pick any room and you walk in and you pray and you walk out of there and tell me you fully believe God's about to change what, that situation. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Pick any room. Pick any room at hospice. Don't matter. You leave here, go to pick any room. And you go in there and you pray and tell me you walk out, you fully believe God's about to change that situation. Not, not you believe God can. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Everybody believes that God can, right? I don't believe there's one person out there in that hospice that God can't change. Does anybody believe that there's anything that God can't change? But I'm telling you, between tonight and tomorrow morning, the coroner's going to go out there and visit a few times. God can, but it doesn't mean he will. I realize it's not God's will that everybody be healed if that were the case. Um, Paul wouldn't have left Trophimus behind him. I lead him sick. He would have healed him. Paul, Paul would have healed this thorn in the flesh that he prayed for three times if it's God will that everybody be healed. I understand that. But I'm just saying a lot of times we pray and we know that God can, but we're just like them. When the answer comes, it's going to catch us off guard. And that, that's kind of how they are. So eventually they open the door and there's Peter. Man, I'm talking about in the flesh. They're talking about the spirit. No, it ain't the spirit. Ain't, ain't his ghost. Harry didn't get in there and kill him ahead of time. It's not somebody throwing their voice and pretending to be Peter. It's Peter. And the Bible says that they are astonished. The word there, astonished, it means astonished. It means amazed. It means that they were beside themselves with wonder. 
Verse number 17, there's a lot goes on in that one verse. It says, He beckoned unto them with the hand to hold their peace, declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and said, Go, show these things unto James and to the brethren. And he departed and went into another place. So first of all, there in verse number 17, there's obviously a huge uproar of the people. I mean, when Peter comes in, and it's really him, there's some excitement going on. Y'all know what I'm talking about? I mean, there's some noise in the house, and Peter's trying to, shh, y'all got to be quiet. Y'all can get the law called to us. Be quiet. I just got out. Don't let them know where we're at. So it says he's, he's trying to calm everybody down, and he gets them calmed down and says, man, you ain't going to believe it. I'm sound asleep. Woke up. My chains is off. There's an angel sitting there talking about, get up, man. Let's go. We got to go. I get up and hurried up. It's the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. Every time we come up on the gate, the pins would fall out of the gate, and the gate just swung open. We didn't have to touch nothing. So, man, it was awesome. Next thing I know, we're standing out in the street, and he's gone. I'm all by myself, so I don't know nothing to do but come here. I just want to come here and tell you all. Can you imagine telling the story? I'm, I'm thinking once he got out in the street, or if you all remember, he thinks he might be dreaming the whole time. Y'all remember that last week, and I can understand that all that's going on. I'm thinking I'm dreaming. But when he gets out in the street and the angel's gone, he looks around, he realizes that wasn't no dream. So he, I imagine he's a little animated telling the story, wouldn't you think? I mean, I would be. I don't know. I mean, Peter, we know, is a type A dude. We know he don't mind talking. We know he don't mind running his mouth quite a bit, right? We know that from everything about the Scriptures. Well, I'm thinking he's got a lot to say, and he's pretty animated. He's telling the story about all that has happened right here. But, but then he says, go tell James. Go tell James and, and go tell the other brother. And that'd be James, the half-brother of Jesus. It's obviously not James, the brother of John. If y'all remember the chapter started out, Herod just had that James killed. He says, you go tell James, and what we'll see from here on out in the rest of our study, you see kind of a changing of the guard, if you will. It's almost like James now becomes the head of the church. Peter kind of disappears here for a little bit. Not really disappears in the Scripture, but has to get out of Jerusalem. There's a lot of people looking for him. He has to, to flee from where he's at. But we see James kind of take over a little bit. We even see it when the Apostle Paul writes his letter to the church at Galatia in chapter 1. He said in verse 18, he's talking about in the beginning of his apostleship when he said after three years, if y'all remember, he vanished for three years after his road to the Damascus trip. Y'all remember back when we talked about that? Anybody remember that? A couple of you remember that? He vanished for about three years, and then he comes back after three years. I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter in a boat with him 15 days, but of the other apostles saw I none save James, the Lord's brother. Same James. This is the one he's talking about here in chapter 2. Paul says that 14 years later, Barnabas and I, Barnabas and I we go back to Jerusalem. Titus is with us, but he says in verse number 7, Contrawise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was to Peter, for he that wrought effectively in Peter the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave unto me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen, and they unto the circumcision. So we see that Paul and Barnabas, Saul at this point, but Saul and Barnabas, they are the missionaries, they are the apostles to the Gentiles, and we see that James and Cephas, or Peter and John, are the Gentiles to the Jews, but you see it even in the way this name that James is mentioned first. Several years later, as they look back at the church, James is named ahead of Peter and John. It says that Peter departed to another place. Peter had to get out of town. 
Peter had to find somewhere to go because in just a little bit, there's going to be a lot of people looking for Peter. There's going to be some upset folks. So it says in verse number 18 that as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers what was become of Peter. I don't know how you could write that to fully emphasize that no small stir, I guess is about as good a way as you can of putting it, but these guards, these guys are in serious trouble. You, you have to understand in the day, if you allowed a prisoner to escape, every guard involved got whatever sentence was coming to that prisoner. That was an automatic. Now, Peter's scheduled to die tomorrow morning. Sixteen guards have let him get away. Guess what their sentence is for tomorrow morning? When it says no small stir, these dudes are pretty upset. I mean, it ain't bad if they get up and, and Peter's gone. The chains are empty, and they can't find where he's at, and they can't say why. You know why? Because they were asleep. That's going to set good in Herod's office, isn't it? Anybody agree? I mean, I'm not, I'm not proud to be one of those 16. I sure don't want to have to be the one to go tell him, what do you mean he's gone? What happened to him? Well, we don't know. We're all asleep. I mean, this whole thing ain't going to go over good. So I imagine they're running around from cell to cell. They're looking under every rock, every cranny, and every corner. And if there's any other prisons, they're asking, did anybody see anything? They're trying to find out. But whichever one ran toward the front, when they saw that front gate open and they knew Peter was gone, their hearts sank because they knew what that meant for them. This is my last morning. This will be the last sunrise that I'm going to see. Verse number 19 says that when Herod had sought for them. Now, if you go into that and look a little bit, it means that Herod himself is looking for Peter. He has all the soldiers. He has garrisons of soldiers out looking. They're going door to door, house to house. Even Peter's friends don't know where Peter's at. All they know is he come by that church. He's gone. Nobody knows. None of the soldiers. So Herod is looking for him. See, this is a big deal to Herod. Remember, Herod killed James, and the Jews were happy about it. And Herod wants to be big. He wants to be popular. He wants everybody to love him. He wants, he wants to be all that in a bag of chips. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, I'll kill Peter. He's the head of the church. He's got these big plans. He's already announced that everybody's going to be there except Peter. We looked at it last week. Peter's the only one missing. So, so he's got a problem. He's made himself out to be all this, and now he no longer has... Peter, so when they found him not, he examined the keepers and commanded that they should be put to death, and then he got out of town. He went down from Judea to Caesarea and their abode. To Herod, I would think he's probably got to be thinking, this had to be an inside job. Some of my own people have got to be in. There ain't no way none of them Jews snuck into this prison through all them guards, got in there with them asleep without waking them up. This has got to be an inside job somewhere. Somebody's betrayed me, and nobody will tell anything. Nobody will say anything. So he has all of them killed, but, but then he heads out of town. He goes to a place. I mean, that's got to be pretty embarrassing to him, right? I mean, you've got this fisherman that's a nobody, and he's just one of these Jesus followers that you don't believe in, and you've got him, and you're going to kill him. And now with 16 guards from innermost prison, he's got away, and you have no explanation. I'm thinking that's pretty embarrassing to, to the highest power in that region. 
So the, the Bible says that he heads off to Caesarea. If you remember when we looked at Caesarea, it is the Roman seat in the region. It is kind of like a capital in the area. It is the center of the Roman administration. So it says that Herod, when he got there, he was highly displeased with them of Tyre and Sidon. But they came with one accord to him, and having made Blastus, the king's chamberlain, their friend, desired peace because their country was nourished by the king's country. Herod is a man of great authority. He is a man to be feared because he has no concerns for life. He, he couldn't care less about your life or anybody else's. He thought nothing about having someone killed if it made him look important. But, but you got Herod right here has got to be like a wounded animal. He's got all this power, but he just got humiliated. I mean, he just backed into the corner. His pride just took a big hit. I mean, my all that in a bag of chips case just let a fisherman get out of my maximum security cell. All of a sudden, I'm not quite as big as I was last night when I went to bed. I'm just, I'm just saying his authority is in question, so he finds somebody right here to kind of reestablish himself with this tire and side on. He's going to take some things out there, but then they, they come in to befriend themselves. They, they come into his chamberlain, and verse 21 says, that upon a set day, Herod arrayed in royal apparel sat upon his throne and made an oration to him. Now, we know a lot from history. Y'all don't, don't cast me out right here. Now, but we know a lot about history from other books. The Egyptians were really good storytellers. The Greeks are some of the most amazing historians ever. They keep great records of everything. So we have a lot of history that confirms the Word of God. We have a lot of history that supports and backs up everything, but we also have history that sometimes can fill in some pieces that maybe might not have put there. And we kind of we have that a little bit here because what we know from history, if this event was games, I don't know, maybe something kind of like the Olympic Games, it was days of, of several games. But what we know is that he, he gathers all of the dignitaries around him. He's all gathered up, and he puts on his royal apparel, that's what it tells us here, and it says that he made an oration to them. That means that he made a public address to the people here at this sports arena is basically where they are. So a lot of things that we know recorded in history. Josephus records in this particular event in the Antiquities of the Jews that this is the second day of the sports and the games which Herod celebrated in honor of Claudius Caesar. He says, now when Agrippa had reigned three years over all Judea, he came to the city of Caesarea, which was formerly called Stratus Tower. There he exhibited shows in honor of Caesar. Upon his being informed that there was a certain festival celebrated to make vows for his safety, at which festival a great multitude was gotten together of the principal persons and such as were of dignity throughout his province. On the second day of which shows, he put on a garment made holy of silver." So, so Josephus, the historian, tells us that this event, this is the second day of this sports event, and he's put on this highly reflective robe which shined in the sun. And he goes on to describe the attire. He put on a garment made wholly of silver and of wonderful contexture. And early in the morning came into the theater, place of the shows and games, at which time the silver of his garment being illuminated by the first reflection of the sun's rays upon it, Shown after surprising manner. That means this thing was like you can't even look at it, man. The sun's 
reflecting off of him. It makes him like a shiny gold image up there, the sun shining on it in a surprising manner and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those that looked intent on him. So he says of that, sat on his throne, he said, this does not denote a throne as in the usual sense of that word, but it is the high seat in the theater where he sat from whence he could have full view of the games and sports. So he had the best seat in the house, right? He had the best press box where he could see everything, but everybody could see him. And it says, from this place, he made his speech. Verse number 22 says that the people gave shouts saying, it is the voice of a God and not of a man. Mm -mm, we're getting in trouble now. The people gave shout right there. That means there's an uproar, kind of like a ninth inning, two out, walk off, grand slam. Know what I'm talking about? Kind of like a... A Hail Mary pass on the last play in the fourth quarter. You're down by five, and that Hail Mary pass, you win, and, and, and the home team wins, and there's an eruption of the crowd. There's this huge roar, and that's what you have here. That's what he's talking about. There's this thunderous applause of all the people, but they went too far when they said, it's the voice of a God. They begin to worship him as though he were a God. But here's where the problem comes in. Herod accepted it. Herod loved the praise. He loved that people were worshiping him. He loved that people saw him as a God and were praising him. Listen, there is a line in the sand when you're dealing with God. You can't go too far. There is such a thing as the end of God's patience. Herod looked in the mirror with his robe, and he saw all that in a bag of chips. He saw how marvelous he was, and he saw how, how powerful he was when he looked out among and had the best seats in the house. He, he saw himself as being something special. I mean, he's like all stuck on himself, right? God says, that's okay. I'll, I'll let that go. You, you can have all that. God, God allowed that. But when it came to accepting God's praise, God wasn't going to allow that. You remember last week when we talked about the angels? I mentioned them a minute ago. But we talked about one of the angels, how the angel came out. He got Peter, and he said, hurry up. And he hurried him out through the gates, and he got him out in the street, and then he vanished. And I talked about it. Maybe some of you went and looked. I asked you to look throughout all the scriptures. Study angels everywhere you can. And every time you find angels coming to the presence of man, you find them coming with a specific assignment from God. They come straight to that person. They do that specific assignment, and they're gone. They don't tarry. They don't do anything else. They don't do anything more. They don't do anything less. And we talked about it last week. That's what we're supposed to be. As servants of God, that ought to be us. God gives us something to do. Go to the place, do it, and leave. But if you remember, I, I said, I, I don't really know. It's just speculation of one of the reasons why an angel might would, as soon as he finished God's command, number one is to get back into the presence of God. I'm going to be that way. I ever get to get there, God give me something to do. I'm going to go do what it does. But as soon as I can, I want to get back in his presence, right? But another really good possibility is that the angel doesn't want to give a man any chance to worship him. And, and, if, and if he comes in and does something miraculous, something powerful, a man's prone to worship this that did something great. There's a really good example of it. If you don't mind, I want to take just a minute. Revela because it is a great example of what I'm talking about. In the book of Revelation chapter 22, John is there and showed me a pure river of living water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God as of the Lamb. Y'all can go ahead and listen to this because this is your future home just in case you want to know. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, there was a tree of life which bare and twelve manner of fruits, and yielded a fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. 
Here come, here comes. Here, here's your home. This, this, this is your house. This is where you're going to live. There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. That's you. There shall be no night there. They need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light. They shall reign forever and ever. He saith unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. The Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Jesus said in verse number 7, Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Verse number 8, I, John, saw these things and heard them when I had heard and seen I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. And he saith unto me, See thou do it not. For I am thy fellow servant of thy brethren the prophets, of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. So we see a perfect example of why an angel may not tarry too long around a man. Because a man would be prone to worship the angel. And the angel understands the importance of you're going to worship something Worship God. The very first commandment that God gave is thou shalt have no other gods. God has to be first. Well, Herod here, he is so stuck on himself, God's allowed that. God's allowed him to admire, him, admire himself in the mirror. God has allowed him to put on this throne. God has allowed him to stand up and let the sun shine and reflect and the people be amazed. And God has allowed him to senselessly kill other people, even to be full of pride and stuck on himself. But he was not allowed to receive praise that belonged to God. When he took God's praise, he stepped over the line. It says in verse 23 that immediately the angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not the glory. All he had to do at that point was held his hands up and pointed glory to God. All he had done say, I'm the king and I'm all that, but give your praise to God. But he said, no, I, I see myself as a God anyway. I can, I can take the lives of men if I want. And, and it says that immediately he smote him because he gave not God the glory. He was eaten of worms. In, in Beza's most ancient copy, he had eaten of worms while he was alive. Josephus makes mention of, of the pain in his belly and how these were occasioned by the gnawing of the worms. This was accounted by the Jews of a very accursed death. Josephus is saying he began having intense pains as the worms began to eat his insides. And it says he gave up the ghost, but here's the deal. He didn't just start suffering in pain and die. This went on for five days agonizing pain of worms eating his insides for five days for accepting God's glory as though it were his own. Mark chapter 9 and verse 44, 46, and 48, Jesus is talking about hell. And in all three of those verses, he says, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. That comes from the same root word as the worm that is eating on him. Listen, hell is awful. Hell is awful. It's not just a fire that's burning the flesh, but the flesh won't burn. But it's worms eating you constant, but it never eats up. But worse than any of it is separation from God to never feel his presence again. To never feel anything but the darkness and the law. The same kind of worms. Herod had convinced himself that he was a god. 
Herod had convinced himself that he had all this power and all of this authority because everybody had to answer to him and, and nobody could refuse him. But when he accepted God's glory as his own glory, God said, that's enough. There is such thing as going too far with God. There is a limit to God's patience. There is a limit to God's long-suffering. If that weren't true, we wouldn't have the story of Noah. If there wasn't a limit to God's patience, what? What is that? Huh? <laughs> They're supposed to kaboom at 815. Holy Spirit, I'm knocking on the wall. Y'all get ready to go. Trumpet coming any minute. What in the world is I even talking? Oh, the line. That was a bad time because there is a line in the sand. That there, there is, listen, this, this is true with people. You witness to people, you witness to people. People refuse God, refuse God, refuse God. You've heard me preach it. I've told people, you can walk away from God now if you want to, but you have no guarantee that God will call you again. You have no guarantee that salvation will be made available to you again. It's been made available. He, he does not have to come to you again. There is one time too many. Anybody, any, any of you ever wanted them? If you're like me and you're raised in church and you literally had 10,000 opportunities to be saved and you walked away from it every time and you finally get saved in your early 20s, anybody ever wonder, I wonder if that was my last time? What do you think about it, Greg? You ever wonder if that was your last time? I'll go to that judgment journey, but I ain't getting saved. I ain't doing none of that. You ever wonder if that was your last? What if that was your last chance? Anybody ever wonder that? I wonder that sometimes. What if I'd walked out of that church that morning? What if I'd have said, God, I hear you. I hear you and I understand it, but I'm going to walk out of here one more time. I've made it this far. I'll do it later. God doesn't have to reach out to you again. There is a line where God says it is enough. If that were not true, then he never would have flooded the earth. The Bible wouldn't have said that God was repentant that he even made man. He was sick of their wickedness. They thought of evil continually. And he was repentant. He made them. And he's going to destroy them from off the face of the earth. So we know from the word of God and the things that he did that there is a going too far. And that's what happens with Herod right here. He goes too far. And God says, that's it. That's it. You can be stuck on yourself if you want to. But you're not going to make a mockery out of me. And you're not going to take my praise. You're not going to take my glory. Verse number 24, we come to another one of the great buts of the Bible. You've got to love the word but, man. There's, there's some huge doors swing on that little three-letter word. But the word of God grew and multiplied. Persecution was there for a season. Saul of Tarsus has been converted into the apostle Paul. Herod has been eaten alive by worms. Now, the Sanhedrin, they still want to get rid of these Christians, but they've lost their hand puppets. They don't do their own dirty work. They, they got to have somebody else to send out. It just reminds us that God does allow seasons of adversity in every time, in every age, in every life. God allows seasons of trials. Seasons of testing, seasons of temptations, even seasons of persecution. But God always has a plan, and God's plan always prevails. It doesn't have to make sense to us. All we have to know is that nothing happens that doesn't come across 
God's death. If we look at the fact that Stephen was stoned, James was murdered, but yet the word of God grew and multiplied. And then it says in verse 25 that Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, and when they had fulfilled their ministry and took with them John, whose sure name was Mark. We, we talk about it. We talk about this all the time in staff meetings. It, it comes up a lot. All of us are expendable. All of us are easily replaced. There's not one of us in here that can't be easily replaced by God. Perfect example. Every one of us in here are nothing but a finger in a glass of water. You put all the fingers in a glass of water. When you take a finger out of the glass of water, there's no hole in the water. All there is is an occupancy for another finger to plug in. There's an occupancy. When somebody moves out, somebody moves up. I've met with some people recently talking about Jason moving on to a spot. Oh, there was an occupancy. Jason moved. Created an occupancy. Someone will move. Someone will move. Someone will move. And somebody sitting on a pew on Sunday morning for the first time will move a little bit. And that will be the beginning of that ministry. That will be the time that every one of us has that works in the church. That at some point when something started and they get a little bit involved and then they do a little more. And, and then they come to this position. And then God will vacate a spot which will move up a spot which will move up a spot which will move up a spot. And somebody else will get off the pew and work. That is the ministry. The ministry is for all involved, for all to work, for all to be a part. That's what, what we see here in this is that they're bringing up Mark, uh, John Mark, John sure named Mark. God always has a remnant. In every story, God makes it clear that God always has a remnant. He always has himself people in place. God always has a next man up. God always has a purpose, and God always has a plan, and praise God, every one of us as children of God are part of it. Yesterday, I had a, a meeting, and they were talking about soul saves, salvations, and, and things. I said, I, I, need you to un, I need you to understand. The smallest opportunity that I have to lead anybody to the Lord is in here on Sunday morning. Most of your people come to church on Sunday morning are Christians. Now, you like to think that a Christian invited somebody that's lost and there's an opportunity. But to be honest, if you've got 400 people in here and you might have one or two that's lost, the smallest opportunity that you have to lead someone to the Lord is in here on Sunday morning. The greatest opportunity you have is out there on Monday morning. So the only way that the church really grows, the only way that we see this right here, that the Word of God grew and multiplied, is that we disciple ourselves here so that when we go there, the Word of God multiplies. The word of, that's why we're changing Sunday nights. I'm sorry, we're just not doing very good on Sunday nights. I, I don't see people getting discipled on Sunday nights. I see a handful of people coming in and getting a little something out of it. I see some people coming by obligation. I see some people coming just because it's Sunday night. I see some tradition. But I do not see us growing as a church. I don't see us getting any stronger. So we've been talking about it. So what we're going to do on the second Sunday of the night will be women. The fourth Sunday will be men. Is this going to be a discipleship? It's going to be about a 20, 25-minute challenge to the men. For the ladies, that, that's up to y'all. But I'll tell you what the men's are. It is just to become something to challenge to the men. If men want to stay in fellowship after, that's fine. Fellowship as long as you want to. But it's not a fellowship. It's not even a prayer meeting. We may pray for the church at the end of it, but it is an opportunity to disciple people. But as a church, we have to disciple people. Our job is to grow. 
Our, our job is when the vacancy comes, or are we the one? Is God that, that next man up? So I don't know why I got off into all that, off, off Barnabas. I guess because the Lord just reminded me of it. I don't know. I do know this. I do know we all have a job to do. And, and our job is to tell the world about Christ. Our job is not to call somebody that goes to another church and invite them to this church. Our, our job is not to try to talk somebody from another church, hey, y'all come over to this church. Listen, leave the aquariums alone. The church is God's church. If it is a church, they're brothers and sisters in Christ. If God wants them at faith, God will move them to faith. And if God don't want them at faith, they won't be at faith. I just straight up all I know how to tell you. If God don't want them at faith, I don't want them at faith. Not only are they in our way, we're in their way. We all got to be where God wants us. God's got a place. And God's got a plan to use every single one of us. And all we see out of John Mark right here, I mean, right here, you got two great preachers setting out to go preach the gospel. I mean, you got, you got the apostle Paul and Barnabas. You got about as good as it gets, right? You got these two incredible men of God, and, and all you got is Barnabas' little nephew tagging along John Mark. But guess who he is? He's next man up. He's going to be an author of a book of the Bible and the Word of God. Next man up. That's what we're supposed to be. That's what discipleship is. That's what training is. That's why you're here on Wednesday night is that we might learn that, that God will do something. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know if any of it has anything to do with that verse right there. But it don't matter what God got me. And I'm out of time because they done shot the fireworks off. So, so we're going to pray and go out there and see what they blew up, see if anything's left of it, right? They, they, they told me to try to make this last a little longer because it's going to set those things off late. We're going to have to have a powwow. I guess their lesson wasn't as long as they thought, what do you think? God, thank you so much for being so, so good. God, I thank you for the examples in your book. God, you didn't accidentally tell us about the chains falling off of Peter. You told us that we'd know when we need chains to fall off, that you can make chains fall off. God, you didn't accidentally tell us that an angel made gates open and he walked out into the street untouched. Lord, you told us that we'd know when we need doors open, you can open doors that no man can shut and shut doors that no man can open. God, you didn't accidentally tell us the part about the church was praying and they didn't believe that the prayer was answered. God, you told it to remind ourselves that when we pray, to pray in the fullness of faith, knowing that, that, that God hears and answers and, and pray with the full expectation so that when it comes, we're not surprised by your answer. God, you told us about persecution so that we know when persecution comes that, that it's nothing to be unexpected, it's nothing new, that the church has been through it since day one. Right out of the gate, it's been persecution. Well, you didn't accidentally tell us about going out and preaching. You didn't accidentally tell us about the word was furthered on the other side of the storm so that we might know when we're in the storm to just keep preaching there's a better time coming and that the world will always hear your gospel, that the word won't ever stop going out, and that the word will always change lives. God, thank you, Father, for intentionally giving us this book, intentionally giving us every single detail in this book. Help us to be intentional about learning it. Help us to be intentional about knowing it. Help us to be intentional about living it. God, we love you. You've been good to us, Lord. We thank you. We trust you and we praise you. In the precious, sweet, holy name of Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.